0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on May 16th, 2021, during our Sunday morning service. If you have never joined us in person, we would love to see you here. Our services are Sunday at 1030 a.m., Sunday at 7 p.m., and Wednesday at 645 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they, too, might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it.
1: Nobility and responsibility. When I was growing up, I was fascinated by stories of knights. And chivalry, romanticized certainly from what life was really like back in the Middle Ages. But the idea of being a a person of significance with a mission that was significant. The noble knight of maybe more legend than reality most nobles were born into nobility, of course, but every once in a while, historically, some underling, some serf, some, someone of the servant class would do something so bold or so noble that they would be brought up into the nobility. They would be knighted sometimes right there on the field of battle. They would be made a knight. Brought into the nobility. Friend, if you are in Christ today, you are not just nobility. You are royalty. You have been brought into the very family of God. And you are a significant, special child of God. You are a person of significance. Not because of anything that you bring to the table, but because of the one who created you. The one who died for you and the one who rose again and is alive. And if you placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you believe in His resurrection, and if your life is based in His life, His resurrection, you are forgiven of your sin. You are a child of God, granted eternal life in Christ. You are significant because He is significant. And today we're going to talk about being chosen in the chosen one. Chosen in the chosen one. Now, just by way of reminder, this is the beginning of our new study in the book of Ephesians. Because we're going to be, for, uh, for a while, be studying the book of Ephesians together, we're going to break this uh, study up into some different mini-studies or, or mini-sections following uh, how the Apostle Paul develops his uh, his uh, doctrine and his practice in this book. And so the first thing that Paul does is he uh, begins to talk in Ephesians about the spiritual blessings. And so this is the series within the series on the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Some people mistakenly think the, the subject, the theme of the entire book is spiritual blessings because Paul talks about spiritual blessings right at the very beginning. But remember... Verse three is not just one statement. Verses three through fourteen are one statement. Verses three through fourteen in the Greek is one single sentence, and so if we want to get the grasp of Paul's theme in this book, we need to get the whole sentence we don't when hopefully when uh, you are responding to somebody uh, I'm sure that we've all made this mistake we We think that we've heard what our wife said. We heard the first few words. We think we know what she was saying, but we didn't hear the entire sentence. We didn't hear the entire statement. We get ourselves into trouble as as kids, as students, when the teacher or the parent is telling us something and we only hear the first few words. Paul is not putting a sentence after spiritual, uh, putting a period, excuse me, after spiritual blessings. He's putting a, a period after verse 14. And so, Let's get some context here and read these first 14 verses of Ephesians again together. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, take a deep breath because this is one sentence in the Greek. So I'm going to take a deep breath here. I don't know if I can get through this all in one breath, but let's see. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that, ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, where which is or who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, some 10 times, if I didn't miscount, some 10 times there in that one sentence, Paul has in some way said in him, in Christ, in the beloved, the subject of this book is not just the spiritual blessings in Christ, but it's being in Christ, in Christ, life in Christ. And Paul will later on develop this life in Christ as the body of Christ as the church. It's written to saints, to those who have been set apart for a specific purpose to serve God and made so, Paul says in verse 1, by being the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this word faithful doesn't simply mean dependable, it doesn't mean consistent because if you place your trust in Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins, you trust in his death and his resurrection as payment for your sins. The only payment for your sins, if you trust in his literal physical resurrection today as the only way to have eternal life, then you are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful here means faithful, full of faith, meaning your faith is only in Christ. You're not adding Christ to the list of things that you're trying to do to get to heaven, to work your way Christ is not just an an add-on that you place on the list of things and reasons that you're going to give to God for why He should let you into heaven. Christ is it. Christ is it. Christ is is my one hope. And if you are fully trusting in Christ, you are the faithful in Christ. Now, Paul says, uh, as we talked about last week, that if you are in Him, verse 4, in Him... You are chosen. We see that in verse three and in verse four, He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according that He hath chosen us in Him. Now, as we saw last week, and as we're going to expand, expand, and expound upon today, uh, Paul is not saying that we are chosen to be in Christ. He is saying that in Christ we are chosen. Paul is talking to people who are saints, and he's saying that God has chosen you, not for salvation, they're already saved, but for sanctification, that we've been set apart by God and you are chosen if you're in Christ. And that means that you have a specific purpose that God wants you to accomplish with your life and a purpose that God has uh, to do and work in and through your life, not only in this life, but in the age to come as well. You have been set apart for God's purpose. You are without blame, Paul says, which means that you've been justified in the court of heaven. Doesn't mean that you're sinless yet, but it means that as far as the law of heaven is concerned, you have been forgiven, justified from all guilt in the court of heaven. Now, that is an incredible privilege that is due only to the fact that the once for all sacrifice for sin has been shed has been paid in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's not something that the saints of the Old Testament could say prior to the death of Jesus Christ. Now, they can say it today. They're with the Lord in heaven today. But before the death of Jesus, the sacrificial system of the blood of animals, of of goats and sheep and, and oxen, all it could do was cover the sin of people in anticipation of the once for all sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. But today, because Jesus Christ has come and he has shed his blood, we don't have to bring animals today. Thank goodness. We don't have to bring animals every Sunday and offer them and 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 have a, a, some kind of system here to get rid of all the blood and the gore. What's missing, though, is as part of that sacrificial system, the Jews had that gruesome reminder constantly of the gruesomeness of their sin so we have a different problem sometimes we forget the gruesomeness of our sin in God's eyes because of the fact that we don't have to offer those sacrifices anymore they had to offer sacrifices repeatedly for the covering of sin but we now have the once for all and this was Paul says in verse four again God's predetermined before the foundation of the world God had set up this plan of salvation God did not freak out in the Garden of Eden when Adam bit into that fruit, whether it was an apple or not, whatever it was, God didn't freak out. God knew what was going to happen. And God had prepared a plan for how to resolve and how to save. And that plan was before the foundation of the world, God established that all who placed their faith in Christ Jesus would have hope not only in this life but in the life to come verse 5 having predestined us unto the adoption of sons now today we're going to begin to look at this idea of what it means to be chosen by God and election last week we got the big picture we looked at uh, at all of the different blessings that we have in Christ in verses 3 through 14 But now we're going to begin to work back through some of these more difficult things and more controversial things. And so as we begin to look at election, let me just lay down down a few ground rules for us this morning. Uh, Number one, sensitivity. Sensitivity. This is a very divisive subject that we're talking about. This issue of election has literally divided families, has divided churches, has divided denominations. In fact, it's, there's a fight right now in the Southern Baptist Convention over this, over what we now has come to be called Calvinism uh, in, uh, in a broad sense. So this is a very divisive issue, and we want to approach this with as much sensitivity as As we can, we want to make sure that we're not hurling names back and forth at each other. But understand the seriousness of this, because what I'm teaching you today in certain places, in certain countries, uh, in the city of Geneva, back when John Calvin was ruling Geneva with an iron fist, could literally get me, if not banished from my home, um, even possibly executed as a quote-unquote heretic because of what I'm going to teach you from God's Word today. But I'm not interested in teaching you theology. I'm interested in teaching you God's word. What's happened in our culture today is we've gotten all caught up in these theological terms that have built up and developed over the last 2,000, almost 2,000 years of church history. And people are more passionate about fighting for their theological terms that have nowhere, uh, no no place in scripture than they are just the very words of scripture. So we want to guard against that Uh, Apollos is somebody we talked briefly about a few weeks ago when we were going through Acts 18, 19, and 20 in preparation for this. Apollos was somebody who was instrumental in this church. Well, in the founding of this church, at the beginning of this church, and instrumental in the church of Corinth, and and just a a great, gifted speaker, but when he first started, he had some bad theology, and when... Aquila and Priscilla encountered Apollos, even though he had bad theology, they didn't um, put a a red letter on his chest. They didn't uh, excommunicate him. They just confronted him. They lovingly shared with him and taught him from the scriptures what Paul had taught them and corrected some of his bad theology. And so we want to deal with this sensitive, this sensitive issue with sensitivity because chapter 4, Paul's going to tell us that we have a responsibility to speak the truth in love. So yes, we have the truth, but we need to do it with love. But the other ground rule is also given to us in that, yes, we, we do it with love, but we have to make sure that we're speaking the truth. And so the second ground rule is the authority. The authority is God's word. It's not the theological system. It's not what Pastor DJ's opinion is. In fact, let me be very honest with you. When I was in my 20s and into my 30s, I was very Calvinistic. At one point in my life, I considered myself, if you're familiar with Calvinism, and we're not going to go, it, this morning, the message isn't about Calvinism per se. Uh, the five points, we're not going to work through what are, what are known as the five points of Calvinism, the quote unquote doctrines of grace which are very little about God's grace. But I at one point considered myself a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist, so I, I, I want to be very sensitive and understand, uh, I want you to understand that my understanding of, of this text has changed uh, drastically from uh, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, I'm 48 now. In my, in my 20s and even to my 30s, I would have taught this and did teach this differently. I, I just had uh, some misconceptions, and I didn't realize... When I was coming to this chapter and, and coming to other chapters, we'll uh, look at Romans 9 if we have time this morning. If not, we'll cover that next week. We'll look at Romans 8 uh, when we talk about predestination next week or in the, or in the coming weeks at some point. Uh, as, as these messages come together, we'll talk about predestination. We'll go to Romans chapter 8. But as I would go to those passages, the, what we now call the proof texts of um, this idea of election, that God chooses some people for salvation and not others, I didn't realize the baggage that I was bringing with me. I didn't realize that I, was, that I had already had in my head definition of terms that were not, the definitions were not from the text. They were from theology. They were from a, a theology book. But they weren't the way that Paul was using the text. And they weren't the way that the church used these words for the first 300 years of church history. As you look at the writings of the earliest church fathers, it wasn't until Augustine uh, that these words began to take on a new meaning in the church. The authority, friend, is God's word, not what the Baptists say. And, and listen, I am, a, I am a Baptist by doctrine. I, I make no apologies for that. But I am a little B Baptist and a big B Bible student. Bible is what has to have the, the capital there, not Baptist. The authority is God's word. Again, we speak the truth in love. Paul does not command us to speak love and make sure you do it truthfully. He commands us to speak truth, but make sure you do it lovingly. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, but Paul says, I have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What matters is today and, and every day that we go to God's word is what God says in his word, not what some pastor says, well, I don't want that. I don't want somebody to call me a, a you know, a, a semi-Pelagian. I don't want somebody to call me a synergist. I don't want to all these words. You don't know what those words mean. Good. I'm glad. All right. What what matters is not the words we've come up with in church history. What matters is the words that God has come up with in eternity and placed into his word. Titus chapter one says, for there are many unruly and vain talkers. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. And here's what Paul says to Titus, whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake so understand the authority is in god's word and so if that's true and it is then we have to also third ground rule we have to approach this with consistency this and all of these subjects that we're going to deal with over the next few weeks election predestination dispensations which we'll talk about here in a few weeks all of this we have to approach with consistency and of course we're talking about the consistency of the scriptures From Genesis to Revelation, from Moses to the Apostle John, God revealed truth, but he revealed it increasingly. He didn't lay out the whole thing and then just repeat himself throughout the Scriptures. There were truths that God revealed in the Old Covenant in Genesis and truths that he revealed in Isaiah and truths that he revealed in Malachi that were not yet revealed in the New Testament or in the New Covenant, but that God then did begin to reveal with John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Covenant prophets, and Jesus himself, uh, and then through the apostles, Jesus' emissaries, Jesus' mission, missionaries, first missionaries and emissaries. So understand this, the New Testament expands and explains the Old Testament. It does not replace or reinterpret it. This is so vital. It's so simple, but it is so often misunderstood. There are many people who want to throw out the old, the old Testament, the Old Covenant, or they want to say, well, that's what it meant to them, but this is what it means now. We can change all of that. We're not replacing, when we talk about dispensations in a few weeks, we're not replacing what God said in the Old Covenant. We're explaining it. We're expanding on that. Uh, in the New Testament revelation, but the New Testament expands and explains. It does not replace or reinterpret the Old Covenant. Some of you uh, heard our message on Psalm 19 a few weeks ago. I won't re-preach that entire message now, but let me just remind you what God says to us in His Word about His Word in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul you want to see somebody change God's word is what changes us faith cometh by hearing Paul says hearing by the word of God it's God's word that needs to change our our mind our attitude the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Since all Scripture is God-breathed, it's, it's all profitable to us, and we need to interpret the Bible consistently from beginning to end and if we're going to consistent consistently interpret the bible that means we have to interpret and read with integrity as well making sure we maintain the integrity of the text in context now everybody that i know that teaches the bible claims that they're teaching in context okay we had an our if we had an arminian up here if we had uh, Roger Olson or Michael Brown on this side and over here we had them debating James White and John Piper. They're, both sides are going to say, oh, we're the ones interpreting in context. OK, so we have to interpret the text. You're going to have to get in the text yourself. You're going to have to be a be a Berean and test with God's word everything that I tell you. That's true every Sunday, of course, but it's especially true when we talk about something over which there is so much disagreement and debate the text in context and part of that is making sure that we are getting our definitions I tell you guys all the time the devil is in the dictionary and if you have a wrong definition of a word if you think like I said last week if you think the word elect or chosen equals salvation you are starting with a wrong starting point you're lined up but you're not lined up at the starting line okay The word chosen means chosen. The word elect means chosen. Chosen for what? Well, that depends on the context. But if we assume we already know what the word means without looking at the context, then we're going to not only start at the wrong place, but you're going to end up at the wrong place as well. We have to guard the integrity of the text. We must never contort the Word of God to fit our understanding. I know you've had this experience, maybe as a kid, maybe putting a puzzle together with a kid, or maybe you're like me, and even as an adult, you like to put puzzles together. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to do that uh, right now, but when I was a social worker, I I would spend some time putting puzzles together. I found it very relaxing, but, but inevitably, especially if it was a you know, a big puzzle, like a, you know, a hundred-piece puzzle. Um, (laughs) Inevitably, there was was one piece that I thought, this piece has to go here. And I remember I would, there were times, I'm going to admit, I can be pretty smart sometimes, I can be pretty dumb other times. I would think, "This, this must be a defective puzzle. I mean, they must have cut this wrong. There's no way... This has to go here, and it wouldn't fit, and it wouldn't fit, and it wouldn't fit, and eventually I would realize, oh, it doesn't go there. That was kind of dumb of me to think that. And so if I don't understand something, that's okay, but I don't get to make the Scripture change to fit my understanding. My understanding. I may not have all the pieces of the puzzle, And, and guess what? When I was a social worker, you pull that puzzle box out of the kids' room, there's a good chance not all the pieces are there. all right. I used to teach uh, chess w- to the kids, um, a couple of the kids I taught chess to, and I know it just enough to, to teach it. I don't know enough to, to do a lot of winning, but uh, the eraser would become the rook. The pencil sharpener would become the knight. Okay, you gotta remember, guy, now remember, this is, a, this is, a, this is the knight, this is the rook, okay? Sometimes we don't have all the pieces. Sometimes we don't understand things. It's okay to say we don't understand things, but it's not okay to add words to the text. We don't get to say, when Paul says that that He, God the Father, hath chosen us in Him, we don't get to add the words to be. We don't get to say chosen to be in Him because that's what we expect it to say. We don't get to add words. In fact, Moses said in Deuteronomy 4.2, this is God speaking himself through Moses. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you. Neither shall ye diminish aught from it that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you. So we don't get to add words. We don't get to subtract them either. Solomon repeated this in Proverbs 30, verse five. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. So if something doesn't seem to fit, it's because I'm not putting it in the right place. I may be limited in my understanding, but I don't get to change. I don't get to add words and subtract words so that it fits what I believe. And so that means we have to understand the context of what we're talking about here. This is something that I I went into a little more detail on Sunday night a few weeks ago. Again, I'm not going to re-preach that message this morning either, but let me just remind you, those of you who are there or introduce you to this, it's very simple, it's very basic, but it's something that we forget. The Bible has a context, not just in the text itself, but the Bible itself has a context. It has a historical context because it's an ancient book. It has a cultural context because it's a Jewish book. Paul says in Romans 3 2, speaking of the Jewish people, unto them were committed the oracles of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Notice that is present tense. The Jewish people are still awaiting the fulfillment of the promises God has made to them under the old covenant. We need to be praying for the nation of Israel. We need to be praying for the innocents on both sides. Palestinian and Israel side. But we need to be praying. We're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Understand that not everything that Israel as a nation does is right and just. In fact, God told us in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God told us that when He reestablished the nation of Israel in a single day, which was fulfilled in 1948, that He would reestablish them in unbelief that they would be dry bones that he would put flesh on but he wasn't going to put his spirit in them yet and so the valley of the bones covered with flesh is what we see today but the spirit is coming and there will be a day in the kingdom when all of israel will worship and serve their king jesus christ and we need to be living and excited about that day as well, but understand that they still hold, Paul says, present tense, the promises of God, whose are the fathers and of whom are as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. That's why Paul in Romans 11 warns us as Gentile believers, which is most of us, boast not against the branches. Boast not against the branches. And what's tragic is in the book of Romans written to the church at Rome, this warning has for centuries gone ignored and defied because the church at Rome has led the way in boasting against the branches. This is a Jewish book. It has a cultural context. You'll see why that's significant in just a moment. And number three, this is a Jesus book. It has a messianic context. Jesus said in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have the key to eternal life, and, and they, that's true, Jesus said, but they testify about me. The reason that the Bible has the key to eternal life is because it's about me. And yet here I am, Jesus said, and you're not, you're not coming to me. You're rejecting me. Not enough to own a Bible, not enough to memorize the Bible, not enough to learn the Bible, not enough to teach the Bible. If you miss the point of the Bible, which is about Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, is the subject. This is what Jesus did in in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection. As soon as he got back with his disciples in the upper room after his resurrection, Jesus said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. And then he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. We have to approach this and every study with sensitivity, authority, consistency, integrity, and then lastly with humility. And again, admitting that we are limited in our human reasoning. We're not ever going to understand everything. Because the secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. These things that God has revealed, Moses says, belong to us and to our children forever and ever. So there are things that we can know for sure, but God's not ever going to tell us everything. I believe even in eternity, there are things that God is not going to tell us. Because no matter how long we live in eternity, we're never going to be as smart as God. We're never going to be as big as God. So we have to have humility when we come to this. Remember Isaiah 55, my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways, my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. So as logical as it may be, and understand that people who teach that election is God saying you, 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 and you are saved. You don't have any say in it because I'm going to make you willing, I'm going to regenerate you, I'm going to save you, but nobody else. They do that, they teach that, they believe that because they want to magnify the sovereignty of God. But see, God can defend his own sovereignty, okay? And the sovereignty of God is not diminished by God creating and making free moral agents, who have the ability because he's given us. Romans chapter 1, they're without excuse because there are things that God has revealed to everyone. You say, well, they're born dead in their trespasses and sins. That's true. We'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to chapter 2, verse 1. But it's also true that the Word of God, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, has the ability, supernatural power to speak life to the dead, to give sight to the blind. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the the Greek, Paul says, to the Gentile. So we have to have some humility as we talk about these things. Now, again, I told you that the subject of this message is chosen in the chosen one. That's the title. Chosen in... The chosen one. Here's why that is so important. The Bible has a context for the term election that does not begin with Paul. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to show you the historical context and the biblical context and the Jewish and messianic context of this term election. Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to show you election according to Isaiah. Now, of course, Isaiah is just the messenger. We're talking about from God himself through the prophet Isaiah. And what we're going to see in these verses as Isaiah introduces us to the idea of election is that election is about two things. It's about Jesus and it's about Jesus fulfilling his promises to Israel. One of the passages that we have really uh, hammered on that one of the nails that we have repeatedly hammered on in our Sunday night study, which we've just started. It's not too late to jump in on the podcast or jump better yet, jump here in in person on Sunday nights, uh, our study of prophecy. And one of the key verses that we're using is Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20, which says that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. We're going to see that election speaks to that. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, and again, it's clear that this is God himself speaking through the prophet. Behold, pay attention, God says, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail to be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. And will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. Will I not give to another? Neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you. God says, you know the promises I've made that I've already kept. Brought you out of Egypt, didn't I? I've forgiven you. I sent the judges whenever you would cry out in repentance. I sent sent the judges. I've kept promise after promise after promise. Listen, I'm revealing something new now, and I'm going to keep this promise too. I'm going to send my elect one. Election is first and foremost about Jesus Christ. God's chosen servant, the chosen of the Father. And what does he say? He says, listen, my servant, he's going to be anointed of the Holy Spirit and he will establish judgment unto truth for the whole world. I'm going to confirm my covenant of Israel, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to send him to be a light to the Gentiles. So here again, those two terms that we started with, not just nobility, but royalty and responsibility. Mine elect one. He is royalty, but he's also my servant. He has a responsibility. He has a mission that he's going to fulfill. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. (laughs) Don't think I came to do away with the old covenant. I didn't I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I came to fulfill the Old Testament. God's servant, Jesus Christ, is the elect one. Now jump over with me to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45, just a few pages. If you have a really big study Bible, maybe more than a few pages. But Isaiah chapter 45, let's pick it up in verse 4. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God besides me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Now jump over with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65 Verse 9, well, let me pick it up in verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Verse 22, they shall not build, and another inhabit they shall not plant in another eat, for as the days of a tree are the days of my people, mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So election is about Jesus, but election is also about God keeping his promise to the nation of Israel, who he calls mine elect. This is why we say that Israel is the chosen people. They are the chosen people of God. There are promises that God has yet to fulfill. For the nation of Israel, and just as we know God has kept His promises, so we know that He will keep His promises in the future. So notice this is a contrast: the choosing of His people, Israel. Notice also, if we if we were to take the time, and and I'm not going to take the time uh, today to read both of these chapters in their fulfillment, but in their completion, but. Isaiah 45 is not just about God choosing Israel. It's about God choosing a man named Cyrus to be king. And Cyrus is emphasized. God emphasizes, I'm choosing him even though he doesn't know me. This has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with chosen for a mission. I am choosing Cyrus. Not to save him, he doesn't even know me, but to use him to accomplish my purpose for mine elect people. Notice also, as we've seen, that not all of Israel is saved and they're still chosen. They're not chosen to be saved, not all of them, but they are chosen to fulfill the purpose and the promises that God made to the people. So even in their unbelief, they remain his chosen People and his elect. Now, again, the, the promise is that someday out of that cluster of grapes, there will come new wine. And out of that chosen cluster of grapes, not all of which is saved, but there is going to come a time when all of Israel will be saved. Nevertheless, the, that promise of being chosen is not just about salvation. It has nothing to do specifically with the salvation of individual Jews, but with the salvation of the nation as a Now, that's election according to Isaiah. How about uh, about let's get to the New Testament and look at what Jesus said. Election as applied by Jesus. Well, Jesus talked about the elect on two occasions. One of them was on Mount Olivet, what we call the Olivet Discourse. That is recorded in both Matthew 24 and 25 and also in Mark 13 where clearly the context there is the fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel. The other time that he talks about it is in Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, God is talking to us about prayer. And he's talking to us about the need to be persistent in our prayer But he also highlights the end times. He also says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When I come to fulfill my promises to Israel, though I bear long with mine elect, he says, will I find faith? And so again, he's talking in context about the fulfillment of promises to Israel, the keeping those promises from Isaiah 65 and on into chapter 66 to the people. By the way, God applied election to not only the nation of Israel in the end times in fulfillment of the promise consistent with Isaiah, but he also talked about choosing his apostles. Choosing the apostles. Jesus told the apostles in John 15, 16, Ye have not chosen me. But I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now remember, I said we need to interpret the Bible consistently with integrity and make sure that we're in context. Jesus there was speaking to 11 apostles. Why 11? Because one of them had just left. One of them was gone. By the way, Jesus also said that Judas Iscariot was chosen. Judas Iscariot was chosen not for salvation, for service. And during the ministry of the apostles with Jesus, Judas was a chosen apostle, but he wasn't chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. He was chosen to be used, even though Jesus knew from the beginning. Jesus said, I know who's going to betray me. One of the chosen. Who was Judas Iscariot? And so this promise, Jesus waited until Judas was gone. For three years, they'd all been chosen. But this promise, God waited until Judas was gone. And he said, I am choosing you to bear fruit. I am choosing you for the work that you're going to. Going to do. Now, this verse is for us, but it's not to us and it's not about us. We can't take this statement, this promise that Jesus made to the 11 apostles, and later on he's going to repeat this promise to the apostle Paul. And later on, before Paul, the apostles in Acts chapter 1 are going to apply this promise to the one to replace Judas, who was Matthias. God is choosing them for fruitfulness, lasting fruitfulness, fruitfulness that's going to last forever, which, by the way, we're holding and we're studying today. The word of God, which he used them to record for us. That's election as applied by Jesus. And again, bringing it back to the Apostle Paul, this is election as amplified, as expanded upon by Paul, by Peter, and by John And what they're doing is not changing the the nature of election. They're not doing that. They're not saying, well, this is what election used to mean, but now it means salvation. They're not doing that. They're not reinterpreting and replacing the old covenant promises. They're not replacing and changing what Jesus taught. But they're expanding it to apply to all who are in Christ. Not just the Jew. But all who are in Christ Christ. Our God's chosen. And again, Ephesians chapter one, have been chosen to serve. Do you know what an awesome privilege it is? Way better than being Sir Darren of Cumberland. Being chosen by God. Being a child of God. I am chosen by God. That is a subject, a title of royalty. But it's also a, a title of responsibility. It's also a subject of I have responsibilities. I have a mission that God has put me on. He set me apart for a purpose. By the way, that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Verses 8 and 9, many of you have memorized. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Now we'll look at the, that verse clo- more closely in a few weeks, Lord willing. But to get technical, to get into the Greek, there is a difference in the genders of the words that Paul is using there. Paul is very clearly differentiating the gift of God from faith. Paul is not saying faith is the gift that God gives you so you can be saved. He makes that very clear in the grammar. He's saying grace through faith is the gift of God. The process of salvation is an amazing gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have a purpose. And so, both believing Israel and unbelieving Israel are chosen to receive God's promises. That's Romans chapter 9. We may come back to that uh, next week when we have more time. Notice also in 1 Peter and in John, again, this isn't just Paul. This is all the apostles. Local churches are called chosen. They're called elect. The elect lady, the elect sister, John says. Peter talks about the elect church. We are chosen by God as well because we're not just God's people. We're God's family. That's an even higher privilege than to be the the chosen people of God, to be the chosen children of God. By the way, 1 Timothy 5.21, angels, some angels, are called chosen, called elect. Paul is not saying to Timothy, God chose to save these angels. Paul is saying that they have a specific chosen role to play in the church. They have a specific oversight To play in the church. These elect angels, Paul says, Timothy, remember the elect angels are watching you. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another. Do nothing by partiality. Peter talks about this as well, by by the way. The fact that angels are watching. the The fact that angels are interested. Angels are interested in salvation not because they have it, but because they're looking at this incredible thing that God has done for us. Amen. Right now, we're a little lower than the angels, but someday we will judge the angels, Paul says. Election here has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with responsibility and, and a place of privilege. And there are some angels, apparently, that have specific oversight of various churches. We see that, by the way, in Revelation 2-3. I know that some people think the angels of the churches are pastors. Eventually, at some point, we'll go into why that's not the case. These are angels that have specific oversight of the church. Now, we don't, I don't commune with angels, okay? I'm not hanging out with the angel of Memorial Heights Baptist Church, and we're not talking business together. But I am reminded by the Apostle Paul that not just the lord is watching the angels are watching us as well and here's what it all boils down to since christ is the elect one isaiah 42:1 peter says that he is the church's cornerstone he is the elect stone the chosen stone the cornerstone. And since Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, that he is the beloved. The beloved of the Father. Remember on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration we talked about a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 12. Elijah was there. Moses was there. In some form, in some way. And God the Father spoke. This is my beloved son. This is the beloved one. Speaking of Jesus. Listen, Christ is the chosen one. He is the chosen stone. He's the beloved one. And here's the awesome thing. If you are in Christ, by faith, you are beloved. You are chosen. You are the church being built up on Jesus Christ. On the foundation. No other foundation can be laid but that which is laid, Christ being the chief cornerstone. You are royalty. But you also have responsibilities. Paul is laying that foundation. This this has nothing to do with God saying, All right, I want you, 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 and you, the rest of you. You better repent. Not gonna let you, but you better. It's not what God is saying. But we're gonna, as we go through this book, we're gonna talk about some incredible responsibilities that we have responsibilities that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to be the church, responsibilities that we have as uh, spouses, as parents, responsibilities that we have in our employment situations, responsibilities that we have in the spiritual realm as well to stand for Christ and be prayer warriors and be men and women of God's word, wielding the sword of the Spirit to wield and fight spiritual warfare. Paul says, I'm going to load you guys up with responsibilities. So as we get started, I want you to remember if you're in the elect one, you're chosen too. You're royalty too. You're a child of the living God. And so in closing, I want you to remember what Peter says in 2nd Peter chapter 1. Go with me to 2nd Peter chapter 1 as we close. Paul talk, or excuse me, Peter in, in verse 4 talks about the very great and precious promises that God has given to us. The promises are the way that we live out the divine nature, escaping the corruption of the world. And he tells us in verse 5 giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. He's, say, he's saying, I'm talking to those of you who have faith. I'm talking to those of you who are saved. You placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, verse 1, is your Savior. You need to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. Now, I don't know where you need to start working, but all of us need to be in that process working on one of those things so we can get to the next level. Because your ability to build on those things, your ability to love is only going to be conditioned on your ability to be temperate. Have temperance, and your ability to have self-control is only going to be uh, uh, conditioned and dependent on your ability to have knowledge of what God wants you to do and not do. But notice, He says in verse eight, "If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But he that lacketh these things, Christians who are they're saved, but they're not growing. They are blind and cannot see afar off. Any of, you, any of you need glasses to see more than a few inches in front of you? Find myself more and more. My wife will say, read this, and I'll, I'm like, oh, my glasses are downstairs. Let me see if I can get it close enough to, to read this. I don't like admitting my human frailty. I told her the other day, I need to get some readers to just sit around the house so I can just grab something if I need to read it. You can't see afar off. You have forgotten, Christian, that you were purged from your old sins. You have forgotten the cross. You have forgotten that Jesus loves you so much that he died for you, that he paid for your sins, and he has given you the responsibility because he's alive and he's resurrected to live and walk in newness of life. You say, well, what about those who aren't truly saved? Well, verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Do you know that you know that you're saved? Do you know that you know that you're elect, that you're chosen? See, if this was something that God had determined and it was unchangeable from before the foundation of the world, God said, you, 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 and you are in. It would make absolutely no sense for Peter to say, make sure you're chosen. Make sure that you're one of the chosen. How do you do that? Are you cleansed from your sin? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ, in his death as payment for your sin, in his resurrection for eternal life? Have you trusted in him? If not, don't leave here today before you do. Let's stand as we close. In a word of prayer, we're going to have a moment of invitation in just a moment. Father, I pray as we deal with these very challenging, sometimes divisive theological issues, God, that we remember that they are first and foremost biblical truths and promises of God. Father, help all of us who are in Christ to understand the royalty to which we have been chosen, the promises that you have poured out on us, but God, also the responsibilities that we have God, we take our eyes off our responsibilities and we forget our blessing. We forget that we've been purged from our sin. Father, help us to remember how much you paid for us in bringing us into your family. But God, if there's somebody here today who has never trusted in you for their forgiveness, they've never confessed their sin before God, they've never turned from their sin, repented of their sin and placed their faith in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. Father, I pray they would not leave here today before they place their faith and trust in you. Father, we love you and thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.
0: That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876 we would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.